Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. Today's episode was recorded live in front of a virtual audience in partnership with CGIAR, the world's largest agricultural innovation network. It is part of a series of episodes that examines the relationship between climate and security. Today's episode takes a deep dive into how gender impacts and is impacted by climate security. The episode kicks off with introductory remarks by Nicolene Dahan, director of CGIAR Gender Platform. I then moderate a panel discussion with a diverse group of experts on this issue, whom I introduce at the top of the moderated session. To view other episodes in this series, please visit climatesecurity.cgiar.org. And now here is Nicolene Dahan. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening from Kenya. It is my pleasure to welcome you to this webinar series. Today is part of a series showcasing live, interactive, thought-provoking discussions on climate security, on topics ranging from policy to migration, with thought leaders and future partners. Today, this webinar will explore an extra dimension that's very important to me. It will explore the link between gender and climate security. As part of the CGR Gender Platform, we are very happy to be part of this discussion. As a group of gender researchers within the agriculture ecosystem, we are very aware and see it on a daily basis of the impact of climate change is having on women. Even here in Kenya, where we have a, a drought going on, With about 30% less rain at the moment, women are forced to walk at the moment 14 kilometers just to get water. And this is basically uh, household water, not even productive water, because for productive water, that would help them become economically more empowered. So we are seeing a lot of these changes in our work and in our research as as we move along. Issues such as gathering firewood is becoming more important. Issues such as agriculture overall is becoming more uh, difficult for women. And as we know, women have less of these assets and often worse uh, quality of these assets. With this, of course, then also comes the lack of voice in a lot of these things. Women often don't have uh, opportunities to, to help provide solutions in these things. With all of this and with the huge amount of conflict and climate change leading to conflict that's going on, we, of course, have a lot of uh, security issues that affect women directly. And so that's why this uh, webinar is very timely as we speak. And so this webinar is very much about putting uh, gender at the heart of uh, climate security. So what does that actually mean? And what can we actually do uh, in that space uh, as we move forward? I'm going to provide a few thoughts um, of how we can actually do it. Some are very tried and straightforward and very direct, but we also have to move to the more complex but as vital issues. And this is also what reflects the work I do within the CGR Gender Platform, where we do look towards research and how can we use research 
to solve problems globally. The first solution is still true and tried and still we haven't been able to get there is to get better, better gender disaggregated data. We need to understand the situation better. Uh, and for that, the first step would be to get better gender disaggregated data. The other sec part, the second part that I want to talk about is getting a better evidence base. There's a lot of discussion about how women are victims of climate change and women need support and whatnot more. But we actually need more evidence and we need to understand and unpack what we mean by that. And also accept and appreciate that women are a voice in this. They're not only victims, they're often victims of systems and not just of their own uh, doing. So I think that's very important, getting that evidence base, getting a better understanding of the actual situation. Third is very much what we try to do and, and are, are very passionate about is co-designing solutions. Um, we can all uh, give analysis of what's wrong, but we also need to figure out uh, solutions. And for this, we need to have and uh, include and also understand and listen to the voice of women often. Often in conversations that I've had with women, they often say, well, why don't people just listen to us? We also have solutions. We also know, why don't people just give us the opportunity? They don't have to give us special training. Just give us part of the training. So what we really need to figure out is how we can actually listen to women more and make them part of the solution and give them a voice in finding those solutions. And then most important, but also very complicated and, and complex is how do we tackle deep-seated inequalities? And we do this often through gender transformative approaches, but really trying to understand what are the norms and values that are preventing women, but also men, from coming to the plate and being able to provide good solutions to climate change and reducing conflict. These are just four thoughts, and I think you'll see them reflected in a lot of the discussions of the panelists. So I would like to now just open that up, look forward to what these eminent experts have to say and what we can all contribute to the uh, conversation on putting gender at the heart of uh, climate security. Welcome, everyone. My name is Mark Leon Goldberg. I am the editor of UN Dispatch and host of the Global Dispatches podcast. And today's conversation is being recorded as a live taping of the podcast. Nicolene Dahan did a great job of framing this conversation, and I now have the honor of moderating an excellent panel, whom I will now introduce. Adenike Oladasu, Oladosu is the founder of I Lead Climate. Welcome. Adriana, thank you. Adriana Erthal Abdenor is Executive Director, Plataforma SIPO, and Senior Policy Fellow at the United Nations University Center for Policy Research. Welcome. Sophia Heyer is Gender and Social Inclusion Leader for the CGIAR Research Program on Climate Change, Agriculture, and Food Security, as well as Director of Women in Global Science and Technology. Welcome. And Dr. Jessica Smith is Research and Policy Director at the Georgetown Institute for Women, Peace, and Security. Welcome, everyone. So I will kick off with some questions for the panelists, then leave time for audience participation. To ask a question of the speakers, please simply leave your question in the comment field 
wherever you are watching this live stream. And we'll get to them in uh, just a few minutes after I ask my series of questions. So with that, let's kick off. And Jessica Smith, the first question will go to you. How does gender shape how diverse groups experience climate change and conflict impacts differently? And which research methods and approaches are best suited to capture these differences? Thank you, Mark, for this question. And thank you to CGIR for convening this timely conversation and to my fellow panelists who are truly doing really important work in this area. Um, as you alluded to in your question, climate change is not gender neutral. Pre-existing social inequalities mean that people experience climate impacts differently depending on their gender, class, ethnicity, or other markers of identity. So often climate change is referred to as a threat multiplier or a risk multiplier, and it does this in part by further entrenching pre-existing vulnerabilities and patterns of discrimination. So we're talking about factors like discriminatory gender norms, gender distribution of labor, access to healthcare, income, livelihoods, discrepancies in decision-making power, all of which lead to uneven impacts of crises on women. Um, so importantly, the same structural inequalities that make women more vulnerable to climate change and conflict also marginalize them from participating in the solutions, which is why efforts to address drivers of inequality are going to be crucial to our ability to successfully respond to the climate crisis. Research shows that moving the needle on gender equality has direct implications for global peace and security and also for climate resilience. For example, we know from our institute's global index on women, peace and security, that where women are doing better, countries are more stable and peaceful. And our recent analysis also found that those that countries that score better on our index are also better positioned to respond to climate change. Looking at gender, climate, and conflict together is really important because climate impacts don't exist in a vacuum. Today, nearly all of the top 20 countries most exposed to climate change are also experiencing violence, instability, or armed conflict, and 13 of them host a UN humanitarian response. An intersectional gender analysis that looks at gender along with other axes of social difference to understand how people are experiencing these impacts differently can really enrich our understanding of these issues and inform effective response. Um, but we also need better data, better data in terms of gender disaggregated data, in terms of studies that are looking at the intersection of gender, climate, and conflict, but better data also in terms of engaging those most affected by these impacts in the generation of knowledge about the challenges women in communities are facing and also the potential solutions. What's actually working? What could be scaled? What kinds of efforts are needed to dismantle barriers to women's participation and decision-making? On this front, participatory research methods that are designed to center local knowledge and engage communities in the research process can really help us out. Methods like the Everyday Peace Indicators approach or photo voice, these are different tools and approaches that can be useful not only for academics and researchers, but also for policymakers and those involved in the design, implementation, and monitoring and evaluation of programs. Um, and I'm happy to speak more about specific methods in the Q&A if people are interested. 
So I just want to end by saying that while women are disproportionately affected by climate change and conflict, what is also true is that they're on the front lines of addressing these challenges. So inclusive research methods that engage women and those most impacted by climate and conflict are going to be critical to our successful climate response. Uh, thank you. Uh, I am now going to move to Adriana Abdunur. Uh, how does the interaction between climate, state fragility, and intersecting inequalities affect women and indigenous people in the Amazon basin? And what needs to be done to address these compounding challenges? Uh, thank you for the question, Mark. And thank you also uh, to the organizers for such a, an important series. It's, it's lovely to be part of this. Greetings to everybody from Brazil. Um, so that's a really good question or questions. And I would start by saying that, you know, in the Amazon, the, the security concerns really have to do more with human security and with levels of um, violence, including homicide, rather than open conflict uh, in the more traditional sense. And what we know from the scientific evidence is that climate change has been contributing towards more prolonged droughts and erratic periods of um, rain, rainfall. And the major concern, as, as most of you probably know, is that this region will get caught in a kind of feedback loop that could accelerate the pace of forest cover loss and then push the Amazon to a point of no return. And what does this have to do with gender? Well, we know um, from the research that Plataforma Cipó and partners have been carrying out in the region, that women and girls in the Amazon, and especially indigenous women and uh, what we call quilombola, which are Afro-descending women, are disproportionately affected um, really by this co uh, deadly combination of factors. You have the historical inequalities in the region. You have the intensifying climate change, which I just mentioned, you have rampant environmental crime, including uh, new peaks in illegal deforestation, which are being promoted by the current Brazilian government. And of course, you also have uh, disputes over natural resources, um, including those that relate to a, a traditionalist development model that's based on very large scale infrastructure projects. So if you take into account the fact that Amazon women disproportionately lack not just access to land tenure, but also to technical and financial assistance to mitigate and adapt uh, to climate change. We know, and we've seen this in the Western Amazon where we do research, that they become much more vulnerable to economic marginalization, to forced displacement, um, including in areas that are more prone to disasters, but also health complications and especially food insecurity. Um, and we against this backdrop, we also have to take into account that the Amazon is an extremely violent region when we look at violent crime and organized crime. And the rates of gender-based violence, especially against women, girls, and LGBTI+. The, and this, by the way, it includes human trafficking, sexual exploitation, forced labor, and uh, lethal violence. Um, the rates of femicide are incredibly high in the region, as are the rates of attacks and assassinations of environmental defenders. And in the Amazon, many of those defenders are women. So the gender aspect also comes into play. Um, as I was said previously, women are not just the victims of this 
deadly combination. They also represent uh, frontline experiences, knowledge, pools, and um, leadership uh, patterns that are not yet acknowledged or tapped into by traditional policymaking. So later on, I can say a little bit more about, you know, the potential solutions and how uh, women of the Amazon can be supported in light of the security and peace challenges. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Uh, I'm going to turn now to Sophia Heyer. Uh, how does climate change drive out migration of young people? And what are the security challenges that young women and men migrants experience in destination areas? Thanks very much. Yes. So let me start with a personal story, a personal observation. Um, when I was returning home um, from a trip to Nepal, uh, where I was attending a meeting, um, when I got on my flight in Kathmandu, I looked around me and I realized on a flight of about, I don't know, 300, 400 people, I was the only person who was not a young man, a young Nepali male. And so I was on a flight from Nepal to Dubai with, um, you know, kind of 300, 400 young migrant workers who were leaving Nepal, looking for work, probably in the Arab region, but I'm not quite sure where. So that was my first experience. And, and recently doing some research on this, I've, I saw um, in a Nepali newspaper an account of how many of these Nepali young men are returning home without their full pay, without bonuses they've been promised, without any um, you know, benefits or security. So they are going, they're very vulnerable. They're not necessarily getting what they've been promised. Uh, and they not they they are not necessarily having a future there. And of course, we've heard you know so different stories. On another flight from Addis Ababa to Kuwait, uh, there were I was not the only um, you know person from my sector. You know there were a few of us development people there, about three or four, and the rest of the flight was full of young Ethiopian women, probably in their twenties um, at the oldest, who were all going to Kuwait for domestic service, and so. They were very excited, you know, they were going to make money, uh, they were going to have a different life. But we all know, I think that there, especially for domestic work, there's very few regulations, there's very little recourse. Uh, they're often not aware of their rights, they're not aware of their employment rights, they're not aware of other rights, they may not get paid appropriately. And we do know that there is abuse of various kinds that occurs. It's not always the case, but this is a really, they're very vulnerable, and so are the young men who travel. So I think we really need to keep this in the back of our mind as we're, as we're talking about climate and security, because migration is going to be one of the major um, dimensions of climate change in the near future, as we, as we come through the coming years. Um, it's one of the main coping strategies that people adopt in response to weather and climate. You know, some migration is short term, you know, it causes a result of floods or other other issues, as we've already heard. But much of it will be in terms of the long term impacts of climate change on agriculture and on livelihoods. In uh, Africa, for example, especially in East Africa, there's going to be increasing drought, variable rainfall, and it's going to be it's going to have very strong impacts on food security. And so what is one of the coping strategies? Will families send members of the household elsewhere to find employment? And it might be internal migration in the country to urban centers, or it might be international migration to other countries. Uh, and so the role of remittances, for example, is, 
excuse me, is very, very important to um, economies in rural areas or households in rural areas. So according to the UN in 2017, I think that's the most recent data we could find, about 31% of international migrants were young people between the ages of 15 and 34. And women, young women, female youth accounted for about 47%. So we have equal rates of young women and young women, men migrating outside of their countries uh, to find work. And why is this? Well, because there are very, very high rates of youth unemployment across the globe. And this is true in the developed world as well as the developing world. And so according to the ILO, about 1.3 billion young people between the ages of 15 and 24, only one quarter of those are employed. So over 100 over 750 million are not working. Now, many of those of employed young people, 23% are in formal employment and the rest are in informal employment. So this is a crucial issue for us to be looking at um, in the future. In, in the context of climate change and in the context of you know, global economy and uh, rights to livelihood, uh, poverty reduction and sustainable development. Now, many young people are in education but those will be mostly men. So the young men are getting more education than the young women. And so what does that mean for young women's prospects? Um, we are you. finding, so, hello? Yep, yep, yep. We're, uh, we're just gonna move uh, very briefly, hold that thought. Let's move uh, quickly to uh, to Adeniki Oladosu. I wanna make sure we, we get everyone in. Uh, Adeniki Oladosu, what are the climate-related security risks that women and men face in the Lake Chad region? Uh, how can exist or existing gender roles and identities exacerbate conflict dynamics or create new ones in the context of environmental scarcity and livelihood insecurity? Yeah, thank you so much. Um, when we talk about the Lake Chad um, region, there are several factors that are affecting women and girls today. As we can see, that the climate change crisis knows no boundaries. And at the same time, climate change has no identity. And in a case study like that of Nigeria, where we have different ethnic group, religion, and the rest, um, it can lead to conflict of what is happening. And looking at the Lake Chad issue, that um, I, um, ability to assess the lake is, is in respect to the fact that you can make use of the resources of which these resources have been depleted. And the more these resources become um, strings, the more it affects women because they have to trek distance to get um, cooking materials, to get water, to get firewood, which is unsustainable. And in the process, it affects their education. It affects their contribution towards environmental protection and conservation effort. It affects their human rights entirely. And according to data I saw, it's it gives the fact that it takes women 200 million hours globally um, per day for them to be able to sort all of these things out for their family well-being. And this is also affecting them um, environmentally-wise, health-wisely, and different types. Because when women become displaced, it makes them totally um, dependent on aid for survival. Because recently I got to... Um, an internally displaced camp where I saw that these women, they have nothing left to live on. 
They just depend on the haze for them to be able to survive. These are the real life experience due to the conflict between the farmers and the earthmen due to resources use. And the conflict of resources use is what is affecting us currently because we have different um, resources because Nigeria or Africa entirely is an egalitarian society that depends on agriculture for livelihoods and it employs um, the largest, um, um, it's, it's one of the largest sectors that creates employment for youth, for different spheres of people, of our lives. So these are things that are affecting us. And since the lake is shrinking by 90%, it's also affecting people's livelihoods. And I usually say that um, the loss of livelihoods has become a powerful weapon against our peace and security. And they, due to this fact that people in this region depends on agriculture, um, they are also um, earthmen, they are farmers. This inter-livelihoods um, makes them to clash a lot because they all depend on the same livelihood. They depend on land, they depend on water, and they depend on vegetative cover. Because I schooled in the food basket of the nation in, here in Nigeria, and I saw the impact of all of these resources on women and girls that they are being displaced in the life in, in the Lake Chad region. Those that are displaced, especially the women and girls, are too taught. And this makes them to have um, uh, to, to be the others eat by the climate change crisis. Oh, I'm sorry. It looks like we uh, lost Adeniki. Uh, we will try to get her back. Uh, in the meantime, I will turn to Jessica Smith for our next question. Uh, the interaction between climate change and conflict can significantly change gender norms, roles, and expectations. Do you think these shifts can be leveraged in a way that creates entry points and opportunities for women's empowerment? And if so, how? This is a great question. And while it is true that both climate and conflict can disrupt gender dynamics and norms, this doesn't necessarily always translate into enduring shifts in social attitudes or long-term gains for women. So Sophia and Adeniki touched on this, but let's take the example of out-migration of men from communities who are driven to urban areas in search of livelihoods due to either climate change or conflict. Um, in the absence of male heads of households, women will take on additional roles and responsibilities and can have greater decision-making power within their families and communities. But when men return, it's likely that they will return with the expectation that the gendered power dynamics and the distribution of labor will revert back uh, to when they were home before. And so we can see a rollback of women's gains. We can see backlash against women in the form of domestic violence um, that very often accompanies these types of disruptions in gender norms. So without efforts to also address the attitudes and beliefs that drive discriminatory gender norms, I don't think we're going to see meaningful progress. Um, but to the extent that we can build this kind of work into our climate interventions, I think we could see some real success. Uh, for example, a project on increasing women's engagement in natural resource management in Sudan um, convened youth, men, and traditional elders in gender sensitization sessions and discussion forums that were designed to shift discriminatory gender norms in the community. And the program radically changed perceptions of those that participated and also doubled the percentage of individuals who agreed that women hold important roles in natural resource management. 
So working to shift attitudes around gender norms is going to be a key part of increasing women's meaningful participation in climate solution. And this has to be done alongside efforts to address the structural barriers I talked about earlier um, and that others have touched on, including issues like women's legal right to own land or their ability to access credit or pursue education or paid work outside the home, which are really important to strengthening women's decision-making power and also their influence. And we ourselves have to shift our thinking of women um, as not only victims or beneficiaries, but toward positioning women as key players who should be informing and shaping the way forward. Um, what's really exciting to me about this particular moment is that we're seeing diverse stakeholders from across sectors mobilizing to address the climate crisis, from government to private sector, security, development, academia, the grassroots. So many more people are taking this seriously. And with that, there's an infusion of resources and also a strengthening of political will that we haven't seen before. So I think we find ourselves at an incredible window of opportunity. And if we get this right, if we ensure women are centered in interventions, the climate policy is gender responsive, and that women have full and equal access to the opportunities created by green transition, it really does have the potential to create cascading effects that positively impact not only the climate crisis, but also strengthen efforts to advance uh, gender equality and global peace and security. Uh, thank you. Uh, it looks like we have Edeniki back. Uh, welcome. I will get to you in just a moment with your next question. Uh, I am going to bring Adriana Abdenour back into the uh, spotlight. Uh, what role do Indigenous women play in governing resources and conserving forests? And how can increasing women's voices and leadership in these processes contribute to peace building? Uh, thank you, Mark. So when we think about uh, women in the Amazon, especially indigenous women, um, they often have a very special connection to water um, and to land. And they play at a, at a functional level a key role in agricultural production and food security, but they do so while conserving the forest. And this is, this is a millennial tradition when you think about the indigenous groups that have been in the region for, I don't know, 15,000 years and that have been able to coexist um, very peacefully with the standing forest. And consequently, these women are the first to feel the impacts of, for instance, changes in the river flows, the reduction in access to clean and fresh water, um, resulting not only from climate-related phenomena, but from uh, the rampant environmental degradation that's taking place. Um, they are also, as I already mentioned, but it's worth stressing, key repositories of traditional knowledge about the environment and climate. So, for instance, here in Brazil, in the, in the Amazon region, uh, indigenous women have been playing a very key role in helping to map climate change hotspots in the Amazon um, by gathering and sharing information that feeds into a sort of indigenous climate alert system. Um, and it alerts um, users about illegal activities taking place on indigenous land. And that includes the kinds of crimes that we're seeing being committed at unprecedented rates uh, here in the Brazilian Amazon. So illegal deforestation, illegal mining, especially of gold, and also illegal logging. The third point is that women are uh, essential community leaders and activists, not only among local communities, but I would say even um, at national, uh, nationwide social movement. We recently had 
a camp out of indigenous communities in Brasilia, the capital, as a reaction to a, a legal proposal uh, at the Supreme Court. And it was very clear that the women had uh, very special leadership roles. Um, I also wanted to mention that Brazil's two largest indigenous associations right now are led by women. Um, and there's also a new generation of Amazonian women, especially youth, who are beginning to engage with politics at different levels. So, for instance, Joana Wapishana, who's from the states of Horaima, on the border with Venezuela. She's the first indigenous woman to be elected to federal Congress. And at COP26, we, we just returned 10 days ago, two weeks ago. Um, it, they also played a very visible role. And in fact, the only Brazilian to speak at the official opening ceremony of COP, um, uh, Chai, she's an indigenous leader who has been uh, very vocal here in Brazil. The problem is that women in the Amazon, as, as elsewhere in Brazil, by the way, they remain severely underrepresented at all levels of government, from state to uh, from local to state to national, which does mean that most of their demands um, go unmet. And so making governance more inclusive at all levels is really, really essential. But I will come back in my final remarks to a very important point, which is that in the Brazilian context, speaking about gender without reference to race and ethnicity um, can lead to uh, failed policies. So I'll leave it at that. Thank you. Uh, let me actually bring uh, Edeniki Oladosu back in the conversation. Then we'll go to uh, Sophia Heyer. Uh, Edeniki Oladosu, what actions has your organization, I Lead Climate, taken to support people affected by climate change in conflict zones? And how can these actions empower women and young people to advocate for climate justice? Okay, thank you so much. Um, let me just give um, like a description of the activity we just went on. Um, we are yet to put it out there, but it's an ongoing project that we are doing personally with our own fund, not an external fund. And one of those things that we are trying to showcase is the fact of how these um, clashes between the farmers and men as be affecting women and girls, displacing them from their livelihoods and um thereby making them dependent on AIDS for survival because women have the fragile livelihoods because they get more of these livelihoods from um, informal sectors and resources that are depleting. And so when I went to this refugee camp, um, very close or along my school where I graduated because it wasn't there formally, but now it's now a reality that we now, we now have um, a refugee point in that region. And one of those things that attracted me to brought this to bring this story to the limelight is the fact that these people get to tell me the fact that they are from different communities, eight communities in Benue, in Nasarawa, in Taraba State. And these are where these are ways at which this climate change crisis is leading to our diversity, making it to be fragile because people and I'll see this from an ethnic point of view, from a religion point of view, and political point of view, but little perspective are people seeing from the environmental point of view. So this was what made me to start um, advocating for it, to start campaigning, rallying for it, using my social media, 
creating um, a YouTube link, um, the Ecofeminist channel, and at the same time, bringing up a blog spot where I can use to highlight it, trying to create different platforms to see how the ways we can tell these stories, create solutions out of it, try to see how we can support these communities because on our own, we can't do it. We need other support to make this a reality. So by these forms, many women can get this information and get empowered to see what is happening in our surrounding that the climate change crisis is now a reality because where i schooled they are seeing it from different point of view either and from an ethnic or religious or um political point of view people aren't, aren't seeing it from the fact that the climate change crisis um, it's now here and it is happening. And that is why I'm saying that in a country like Nigeria, climate change can lead to ethno-religious war, whereby people, uh, by diversity, um, will become so fragile that it can lead to um, war at any time. And that is why we need to put gender um, at the center of this, that more women have to be educated, given access to own the land, because they can transform their indigenous knowledge in um, tackling the climate change crisis. And through edu being educated, they can also uh, become a technicians. They can also become a solution makers, a change makers, as I am, to be able to create solutions, workable solutions to their society at large. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, Sophia Heyer, over to you. What role do women play in building resistance, resilience, pardon me, to climate impacts? What type of research and policy are needed to prioritize women's agency, knowledge, and capacity in climate change adaptation? Thanks. I'll start with answering the first question, and maybe later in the, in the follow-up questions, I can maybe answer the second. So, you know, as... as um, Many members of households are migrating, as I, as I spoke to in the first question. It leaves often leaves the woman um, head of household or to become the head of the household at home uh, with increased workloads, uh, less access to resources, which we know. Um, they have less access to extension. They have less access to finance. They have less access to information, including early warning. And so the work of CCAST has been focusing on women's role as uh, Stabilizer, stabilizers in community around food security, um, uh, stable households, livelihoods, uh, and dietary diversity and nutrition. And what we've found in our work over the last few years is that there's four kind of major aspects of what we found to be gender inequality in the context of climate resilient agriculture. And, and our approach has been to let's um, work with women to give them or ensure they have the tools to empower themselves. And in this way, we're also finding that structural inequalities and some gender and gender norms can be adjusted. So what are the four aspects? Participation in decision-making at different levels, including the community level, as well as national levels uh, and the household level. Uh, access and use of productive resources. So that includes agricultural inputs, um, information, finance and credit, um, and, and other uh, resources like that. Decreasing their workloads, which have already been quite onerous because of their triple day of productive responsibilities, domestic responsibilities, and often community organized environmental or other health or social network activities. 
uh, that are increasing as men and young people leave the households. And finally, what's a platform? We found that a really useful, really effective, um, sustainable platform for achieving some of these is women's, co women's and community collective action in communities at the grassroots. And this is a way where women and members of communities, so not just women, but it is an important platform for women, can access resources communally, can share resources and exchange resources. They can use these as basis to, to um, get access to information, education, training, and it's also a way for them to share um, share their workloads and things, even things like daycare. So what we've been finding and what um, many other groups are, or, or um, there are many other examples of this is that women are actually forming these organizations already in many situations. I think we've all heard of revolving credit associations. Uh, village savings and loans are often based on existing community work. In Nepal, we based some work on um, uh, introducing solar-powered irrigation pumps in existing women's district committees so that the women would um, manage the, the irrigation themselves and the solar pumps. It decreased their workload because they were no longer reliant on manual irrigation. It, it gave them um, enhanced standing in the community because they were managing this new technology, and it tripled their agricultural production. So from one crop, per year, they got three crops per year. So it also increased their income. And there's one other example that I'll briefly tell you about in Senegal, where a local women's committee um, started a livelihood um, enterprise together, which gave them increased standing in the community and increased interaction with the village committees on managing their local environment. So we're looking at this role as a way for women's increased resilience as the pillar of stability in a community in the face of climate insecurities. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, thank you. So we are about to enter our final round of questions. Uh, before we do so, I do want to remind the audience to ask your questions to the panelists by simply leaving your question in the comment field wherever you are watching this live stream. Uh, so to each of the panelists, I'm going to ask you, in your opinion, what are the top two strategies that can be taken to support gender-informed responses to climate security risks? Uh, two strategies, and we will start with Jessica Smith. Thank you. Uh, so I've emphasized the need to address the gendered impacts of climate change and ensure that women are able to meaningfully participate in an informed solutions, as many of my fellow panelists have. But as we move forward with these efforts, another aspect of addressing climate security risks is ensuring that our interventions are grounded in an ethics of do no harm. Um, when we're asking people to participate in programs or research projects, it's not without risk, as Adriana and others have touched on in their comments. According to Global Witness in 2020, a record 227 people were murdered for defending their land and the environment, and Indigenous groups continue to bear the brunt of escalating violence, with more than one-third of all fatal attacks in 2020 targeted at Indigenous people. Um, emerging research and stories from women on the ground reveal that women environmental activists face gender-based violence and death threats for their engagement in this work. So we really need to be accounting for this and the gendered nature of this type of violence in our interventions to mitigate risks to every degree possible. And we need to be transparent with people about what potential risks are for participating in projects that we might be designing as the international community. 
Um, and then I think we also need to establish better mechanisms for helping people stay safe or get to safety when they become targets of violence. Too often when a program cycle ends or a policy priority shifts, we leave people behind who have partnered with us and then they end up facing significant risks to the well-being and the well-being of their families all on their own. So that's the first thing we need to uh, orient ourselves around an ethics of do no harm. The second strategy, very briefly, that I'd like to emphasize is the need for greater efforts to bridge silos between stakeholders working in diverse fields on some aspect of the gender climate conflict nexus. We need to talk to each other. Um, we don't all have to be an expert on the whole nexus, but we do need to understand how these factors and dynamics map onto our agendas. And this will help us also to identify points of synergy where we can harness collective action that will help us increase and accelerate progress. Um, Thank you. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Well, I'm so we were, I'm, I'm getting uh, lots of questions coming in for the audience. So I want to try to cycle through this last round pretty uh, quicker, uh, more quickly uh, to be sure to get to audience. Um, uh, so. Uh, Adriana Abdenor, uh, over to you. Can you give us two strategies that can be taken to support gender-informed responses to climate-related security risks? Uh, sure. Thank you, Mark. So I would say that one very important uh, step, and it's an initial step, is um, for us to develop locally informed risk assessments that are both climate and security sensitive. And that's not very easy to do because sometimes climate data is very long term, whereas security data tends to be more short horizon. But it can be done, especially when it incorporates and really is based on local perceptions and experiences and understandings. And that has to lead to very clear criteria for implementation and financing of responses. So we need to develop methodologies that, um, that, that capture these dimensions, but at the same time that are flexible and that they can be adapted to specific settings. And then secondly, um, and colleagues have already mentioned, there's a need for data and, and for analysis. So you know, support for research and knowledge generation, especially within the region itself, is very necessary. Um, and I, I wanted to highlight that point that in Brazil, the discussion about gender and the intersectionality with uh, race and, and ethnicity is very, very strong. And when it comes to policymaking in the Amazon, it would be a huge mistake to address gender without looking um, just as systematically as the other dimensions. So I would leave it at that. Thank you. Uh, thank you. And Sophia, higher uh, to you, some, some two ideas, two policies, two strategies you'd recommend. Sure. The first would be the collective action approach that I was discussing. Uh, often uh, collective action already exists in communities. It's a strategy that people understand. It also gives women a platform in the community. It gives increases their voice, increases their status, um, gives them support. Uh, and it doesn't necessarily have to be women-only organizations. In some cultures, that's appropriate. In other cultures or in other situations, to have women involved in um, local decision-making and village committees uh, and so forth, I think is really, really important. Of course, um, supporting women's livelihoods is a very important resilience strategy, especially as uh, they may not have access to the same resources as men in the community. But I'd also like to mention the importance of information, the importance of climate and weather information. Uh, for women. Uh, they may not necessarily have access to mobile phones. They may not necessarily completely understand uh, the information that's generated on phones, and they may not have smartphones. Um, some research that CCAS has done in Latin America found that many rural households only have one phone 
And so the phone will be with whoever either decides that they will have the phone or wherever the network is the strongest. So what are the alternative strategies to ensure that women and men and youth do have access to information as well as early warning information when they need it? So those are things that really need to be looked at in my view. Thank you. Uh, thank you. And Adeniki Oledosu, over to you for uh, your two ideas, two strategies. Uh, you are muted. You should unmute. Sorry. So one of those strategies I, I, I think can be used, many of it have been mentioned by uh, my fellow panelists, um, but one of it too, it's um, about strengthening, strengthening our um, informal sectors, because these are women that have the largest or contributes the most to the informal economy because we saw this with the COVID-19 that um, it displaced in quite a number of women um, from their livelihoods because it is fragile and it is sensitive to climate change impact and its effects. So we have to strengthen the informal economy so that it could be able to withstand any shock from the climate change crisis and it could help to build women's livelihood at the same time. And also, we also need to look at the traditional form of it because we look at the fact that... Um, oh, I'm sorry. Oh. Yeah, I think we still have you. You can finish your thought. Yeah. Okay, so migration should be an adaptation strategy, but now in recent times it is failing because of the fact that um, uh, the clashes that occurred between um, inter-livelihood um, strategy between the farmers and the headsmen, of which um, makes women and girls to be at the center of this crisis. So we have to, have to sort of um, traditional means of strengthening women's livelihoods. And at the same time, because women have to be given the um, right to own a land, for them to be able to bring in their indigenous knowledge, tackle the climate change crisis, grow long-term crops, um, grow trees, crops, and the rest of it for it to be able to um, resolve issues concerning our environment. And at the same time, giving access to basic resources that they will need for them to be able to adapt to the impact of the climate change crisis. All of this response strategy will help, to, will help women to be able to withstand the test of time from the climate change crisis. And also a very important point of it is the fact of the gender action plan that every country have to develop and maybe every um, civil society also needs to bring up to see how they can keep in integrating women and girls in their various strategy in um, carrying out and, and especially when it comes to financial aspects um, looking at the fact that we need a um, if gender sensitive finance for women to be at the center of it and implementation uh, and in, in every wise. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. So we are getting questions in from the audience. Uh, these questions so far actually being individually directed. So uh, I'll ask you just to take uh, one minute uh, to answer each question so we can get through as many as possible. Uh, the first one is for Jessica from Dr. Katie Tavener. Could you expand on, ev the, on the everyday peace indicators and how they've been used to better understand the gender climate security nexus. Sure. 
Thank you so much for this question because I love talking about everyday peace indicators and my colleague will post a link to their website in the chat. But uh, everyday peace indicators in, is an approach to collaborative indicator development that really works to engage community members in the development of indicators uh, that can identify issues of concern, um, monitor and evaluate progress, inform program design, um, and also track trends um, across time in communities. So for example, if we wanted to develop an intervention for a community experiencing conflict over diminishing natural resources, we could use a process like everyday peace indicators to understand the factors that are driving the conflict from the, the perspective of the people that are actually experiencing this. And the key thing about everyday peace indicators is not that they're newly developed indicators that come out of focus group discussions and community dialogue, but they're indicators that people are using already in their everyday lives that signal to them um, if things are getting better or worse, or if there's changes in conflict dynamics or in, in peace in their communities. So I would be happy to connect with you offline and, and tell you more about that, but it's a really wonderful participatory methodology that has a lot of import both for academia, but also for uh, program and policy development. Uh, thank you. Uh, and this next question is for Adriana. Uh, UN Women is currently running a campaign called 16 Days of Activism Against Gender-Based Violence. Can climate action be used as a tool to tackle violence against women? And if so, how? That's a great question, too. Um, I think that I can think of two different ways. One is that we need to better understand how patterns of environmental crimes, including illegal deforestation, are to different patterns of violence. And we know from anecdotal evidence that this includes substantial amounts of gender-based violence. Uh, but we need to better understand that relationship in order to design preventive uh, approaches. It's, it's pretty clear, though, that once if you are effective in preventing illegal logging or gold mining, that you can also address other aspects of violence. The second dimension I can think of is uh, through greater protection for environmental defenders, because again, there's a very strong link there between gender and uh, the types of attacks, most of them violent attacks, including homicides, but we also see sexual-based violence, and we also see cyber attacks that often affect uh, people's lives in very substantial ways. So I think that um, better research and then uh, designing more targeted uh, responses in those two areas could contribute towards violence reduction. Thank you. Uh, thank you. And for Sophia, uh, we've talked a lot about women in this discussion, but what role do men play in promoting gender equality in a changing climate? And how can programming and policies empower them to do so? Thank you. Yes, we do. Um, but we need to talk about young men as well as, as older men. So I think we need to recognize that uh, many young men are voting with their feet and they're leaving. Um, so that's one critical issue to look at. You know, is it a, a, a matter of education? Is it a matter of access to finance and loans? Um, is it a matter of um, supporting them to develop new enterprises, maybe digitally based enterprises, maybe 
um, livelihood, um, agricultural-based enterprises. They need support entering the value chains as well. Um, some of our, some of the work at the International Livestock Research Institute looks at the role of young women and men in the dairy chain um, in Kenya, and and what can we do to support young people um, to enter the the agri-food uh, value chain or food systems. So that's one issue. The other issue is to work with women and men in a community. Um, research has found that when women, men are involved in information sessions on a new activity, when there's consultation in the community about appropriate approaches or appropriate new projects or ideas for new opportunities, then uh, if men feel that they're equally consulted, then they're going to, there's going to be buy-in and uh, that they will support their wives. And in some cases, you know, increasing increasing in household income will promote more equal decision making between the women and the man the woman and the man in the household as well we have found with ccaps increased access joint increased access to agricultural production information also does that either by phone or by television you know the shamba shape up um, television show is a really good example of bringing that to families uh, thank you uh, and so adenike um a question for you. I know you are a climate activist, uh, so this question I think is, is you're well positioned to answer this. Uh, COP27 next year is taking place in Egypt, a country obviously with a lot of inequality between the sexes. Do you think this sends the right message? How can leaders attending make sure that despite this gender equality is at the forefront of climate negotiations and action? Yeah, it, it needs to start now. We, we can't wait for when um, it is COP27 before we take decision because they should by now be able to recognize the fact that gender issue is a global issue. It is not limited to only Africa alone. And the fact that Africa is hosting um, next year COP, it should also resonate about the fact that we have to see this in the forefront of this issue because once gender it is it's not part of the discussion, it's like no work done or no decision taken because this is an issue that is a defining um, that is defining moment of our time right now. We are seeing that every issue in our society today is gendered, and hence we need a perspective, a solution from those angles, and. Um, Looking at the fact that also gender is a cross-courting issues, finance, um, economy, social, tradition, and different things. And that also have to tell us more the fact that we have a lot of work to do in trying to shape the perspective of how decision-making is going to be done for gender issue not to be left behind is such an important um, um, gathering where big, big decisions are being taken that concerns our lives. So we have to start now and we have to start it in the right direction to know who we are going to talk to, how are we going to bring gender at the heart of this, because that, that is what we talk about activism. Activism works when we all come together to make our voice to be heard um, locally and globally. Thank you. Uh, well, that concludes the moderated portion of this conversation. Huge thank you to each of our panelists for participating today. And again, this conversation was recorded as a live taping of the Global Dispatches podcast. Please subscribe to the Global Dispatches podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. And now it is my pleasure to turn the camera and mic back to Nicolene Dahan. Over to you. And thank you. 
Thanks, Mark. Um, wonderful. Uh, it's been my honor to host this, uh, this webinar, and I will not try to summarize all the amazing things that have been said, um, but we'll highlight a few things that have tweaked my curiosity and I think are important as we move forward. First of all, we need to start now. Um, I think that's a call to arms, and, and I think we should all uh, listen to that. The other interesting thing is that all the conversation shows that it's across the world. We have talked about Nepal, Chad, Brazil. They all have uh, are experiencing climate change. So we know that it's across the world, which, of course, brings me to the next issue, which is also that we need to understand context. Um, being uh, a gender issue often or climate change and climate and uh, gender issues, we need to understand the context in which it's happening. But first of all, let's talk about two sides that I think are important that have come out. One is the consequences of this intersect between gender inequalities and often climate change and consequentially conflict, as one is the whole issue of depleting resources. You'll see throughout our conversation, it has come up several times. So we need to understand that and we need to understand the role women have in it. Some wonderful examples of women understanding that uh, levels of rivers are going down and understanding Lakes are, are, are disappearing, and how can we under, use that knowledge much better? We also understand that one of the consequences is migration, is conflict, is environmental crimes, is crimes towards women. All these are consequences of this intersect that we've been talking about. So what does this mean for the future? The future. We need to have more voices heard. It's as simple as there. We need more visible roles for women. They're still unrepresented. Governance needs to become much more inclusive. That's what a call was from several of the respondents, the panelists. We also need to move away from talking about women as just one group. And this is, again, where the whole intersect between gender and race has come up. But we need to become much more nuanced in, in the groups we're talking and understand the intersectionality and how these actually play out against each other to make sure that policy works, as was one a call for arms. We also need to understand better what is happening, what is actually happening on ground. We need for intentionality, actually really thinking it through and actually being intentional about understanding these gender inequalities. We need to understand context, as was said as well. And most important, a call to find change makers. And I really appreciate all the panel members on this uh, webinar because they are amazing change makers. And so we need more of you and we need many more to help us in this process. Thank you again for uh, uh, joining us today on this webinar. We really appreciate it. And I just want to say that there's one more webinar in this series on December 8th on is energy transition a risk or opportunity for climate security? Let's hope they also consider gender in that. Good night, good day to everyone. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to CGIAR for partnering with the podcast around this series. We'll have one more episode left in this series to go coming up soon. And again, please visit climatesecurity.cgiar.org. Thanks. We'll see you next time. Bye.